Father, as we gather in the name of your Son, we're so grateful for the beauty of the holiness of Christ. As we study Scripture, this becomes so evident to us. And we see the radiance of your glory from page to page in Scripture. And Father, we thank you that as we study the Word of God, you instruct us, you draw us closer in our relationship to you, you give us greater understanding of who we are and what our role is to be here. Father, sometimes we have the sense that we may be of little value to your kingdom, and yet each of us is of equal value, and you have a particular job for each of us to do. May we, we, may we be aware of our need of the infilling empowerment of the Spirit of God in order to be what you want us to be so that we can do what you desire for us to do. Father, I ask that you will be very present this morning throughout this Sunday school in each and every class. We invite your presence here this morning amongst us, that we will not only sense uh, the truth through the word, but we will have a, a, a keen realization of how much you care for us and how much you desire that we uh, serve you for our own sakes as well as for the sake of the kingdom. Lord, may your truth be real to us today, and everything that is not part of your truth, may it not be in any way remem remembered, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 32. I mean, beginning at verse 22. Genesis 32, 22. Now he, that is Jacob, arose the same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. Then Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you have asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Jacob is facing his encounter with Esau after 20 years. He had run from Esau originally, and much had transpired in the intervening 20 years. From a man who crossed the Jordan with nothing but his staff in his hand, he now comes back as a man of great wealth. Not only a man of great wealth, but a man with four wives and a dozen children. 
a man who now has responsibility, heavy responsibility resting upon his shoulders. But in all of this, we have to remember he is being prepared to what? To inherit all that his father, Isaac, would leave to him, not only of the wealth, but also of the promise of the covenant. As Jacob considered the encounter he would have with his brother Esau, we remember that he sent herds ahead of him, a gift of 580 animals that he sent in small herds, probably one of each kind, southward along the king's highway so that this, these herds might be encountered by Esau as Esau approached from the south coming up from Edom. Jacob, however, knew that sending his brother gifts was not going to be sufficient in and of itself. He needed God's help. And he chose to do what I think we at times need to choose to do, and that's to get along with God and wrestle with God in prayer. He sent his family across the Jabbok. It says he sent everything he had across the Jabbok, so he was alone again as he had been when he first crossed the Jordan with only his staff. Here Jacob was now alone. Everything was on the other side, the south side of the Jabbok. He was on the north side. It's clear his intent was to pray and to spend the night in prayer. Intercessory prayer, interceding not only for himself, but for his family and all that he possessed. It was an agonizing night for him. And as he agonized with God in prayer, the angel of the Lord came to him. He didn't recognize him, of course, at first. It was just a man who, in the darkness, came up to him. And uh, what, what can we imagine? What kind of an encounter must it have been that led to a wrestling match between these two in the dark? It must have been a little bit frightening for Jacob. And these two wrestled on until dawn. And as the sky in the east began to brighten, the one with whom he wrestled said, let me go. And Jacob continued to wrestle. And so the angel touched him on his thigh. And in the process, it dislocated his thigh. And I noted last time that certainly Jacob at that point became aware of something. Because this man didn't hit him with a club, didn't crash him on a rock, just simply touched him. And his thigh was thrown out. This could only be an act of a supernatural being. And what, of course, the angel was proving to Jacob was that he was not a man of self-sufficiency. He was not a man who could live and accomplish God's purposes in his own strength, but he was a man who was dependent, dependent upon God. His strength was gone, and all he could do was cling, and so he clung. He clung on, and the angel again said, let me go. And he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Remember last week, I mentioned to you that it was not that the angel couldn't get free of Jacob. The angel of the Lord, or be it just a plain angel, would have no problem being freed from a human. A human is, is weak compared to the supernatural powers of this universe. But he touched him so that he might be freed, so that he might recognize that he was not wrestling with a man. God is almighty. Men and women are weak in comparison. 
God allowed him to wrestle with him for these long hours. God, in fact, gave him the strength to do it. And remember last time I read to you from Hosea, let me just re uh, read a verse there, and you don't have to turn to it if you don't wish. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, In the womb he took his brother, this is Jacob took his brother Esau by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel. And there he, that is God, spoke. With us, says Hosea, us through Jacob. God spoke to the whole nation of Israel through Jacob. Jacob clung to the Lord, clung to the angel. It was a time of testing. It was a time of proving whether this man was genuine in his commitment to God or not. Now, this is what we can do in prayer. We can discover the genuineness of our relationship with God. Are we serious in our relationship with Him? God wanted him to know that through Him He was going to raise up a great nation. Now God is concerned about your everyday needs and my everyday needs, and He has promised to supply those needs. The Scripture makes that clear. But, but God has a bigger plan going that involves the, the whole world. And God wants us to be a part of that plan. We have a tendency to be very parochial. Now, we, we just see our little microcosm here, and, and the rest of the world just goes about its way, and, and we're oblivious to it. That's one of the reasons that I urge that we be sure that we subscribe, for one thing, to the Alliance Life magazine, because this gives us a world awareness that we otherwise may not have. And other Christian magazines uh, do the same, uh, many of them at least. And, and we need that. We need to know what's going on in Russia and South America and, and Asia and Africa. We need to know that we're not alone in this and, and that we're not the center of the universe. We need to recognize that we're part of God's big program. And, and he wants us to be world Christians. That's a kind of a buzzword in, in recent decades, to be world Christians. But, but it's a very meaningful thing. Uh, we, we need to be a part of what is happening in Africa because we can be a part. We can know. Um, the, we, we get these prayer requests that come out once a month in the bulletin. Uh, the Alliance Live prints up-to-date prayer requests that come in the beginning of it. Uh, there are ways by which we can be made aware of what's happening. And you know, if we start praying for other people besides ourselves all the time, sometimes our problems are self-resolving as a result. I ended class last time with this quotation uh, from Dr. Henry Morse, and I think it's worthwhile. He says of this that this shows that God desires men to persist, and, and women, of course, men and women, generically men, to persist in prayer, and that he delights to honor such prayers. There is indeed such a thing as prevailing prayer. When the request conforms to the will and the word of God, and Jacob's experience symbolizes all such prayers. I'd like to turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Reading the first eight verses. And specifically notice the first verse. 
Now he, that's Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are doing what Christ said to do in that first verse and doing it in faith? Will he find people who are at all times praying and not losing heart? I think we need to encourage one another with the fact that we're on the winning side. Jesus has never lost a battle, nor will he. Now, God's definition of speedy justice and ours may not exactly be the same. We might like justice yesterday, but God brings it in his time. God accomplishes his purpose as he sees fit. Sometimes that's before the eternal bar, rather than here on this planet. But we must recognize that God, with God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We must not be impatient, but not lose heart. This passage in Luke teaches us, as does the passage in Genesis, of the importance of perseverance in prayer. I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm ready to give up. You know, you pray and you pray and you pray, and, and what you're praying for never seems to happen. And sometimes it's easy just to say, well, chuck it, that's not going to happen. But God wants us to persevere. You see, if we're praying for what is His will, He wants us to persevere and to realize that our time and His time don't always coincide, and so it's important for us to bring our expectation in line with his timing. And really, we can only do that through prayer and study of his word. God wants us to learn to be perseverant, and he wants us to learn also to, uh, to ask him for the gift of faith. Now, you can't generate faith. You can't just, mm, you know, squeeze it up there. It's a gift from God. But, but the more you know God... The more I know God, the more I study His Word, the stronger my faith becomes. Because I know who He is. And as I get to know who He is, then I can trust Him to do what is right in His time. And God does want justice. I mean, that's part of His character. That's an attribute of God, is justice. Uh, God doesn't know injustice. There's no injustice with God. And therefore, justice will come. We, we look at a course at at cases of mass murderers and, and they get 20 years in prison and, and get, uh, you know, some, some ridiculous thing. I mean, people get out of prison now uh, after 20 years for some heinous crime 
and, and go out and commit another one. We say, where is justice? I don't know if you ever read that part in Reader's Digest. There's a little section off in Reader's Digest on some, like, that's outrageous or something. And you really, you read those things, you wonder, <laughs> you're ready to slug somebody, you know? Because it seems like our, our system is so wrong. And the problem with our system is it's made up of human beings. And as long as it's made up of human beings, it's going to have wrong in it. Injustice is built in. But we have to to recognize that in God's time, justice will come, and there is not a single crime in the history of the human race that will not be dealt with by the Almighty. Now, some of them are dealt with in the fact that God has cleansed us from our sin, and he's buried it in the depths of the sea. And, and we have been forgiven because we have sought his forgiveness. But those, those crimes and those acts that have been heinous acts in history that have you know that those perpetrators have never sought God's forgiveness. They will all be dealt with by God in His time. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter seven. Extremely well-known passage that that also reinforces the same concept here. Matthew seven seven. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives maybe, right? No, it doesn't say that. It says receives. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it shall be open. For what man is there among you? When his son asks him for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he shall ask for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Because God is perfect and God loves us with a perfect love. And God knows what we need and God knows what gifts we should have. And, and of course, you know, when Jesus makes this statement, he's not saying that there is no place on this planet a father who, who wouldn't give a stone, his son a stone in place of a loaf of bread. I mean, there are people like that. But the average father is going to give good gifts to his son or his daughter if it's within his capacity to do that. How much more will the perfect father in heaven give good gifts to his children? He wants to give us good gifts. And this is uh, part of God's desire. And you know, as, as we so often quote from James, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of light, who is immutable, it goes on to say. He never changes. And we, we must look to that and depend on that and recognize that, I think. Now, sometimes, of course, we don't give, get the gift we, we ask for because it's not appropriate. James tells us a lot about that. He says, sometimes you don't get what you want because all you want to do is consume it upon your lusts. Uh, but any gift that furthers what God wants to do in your life or through your life in another person's life, God will give it. And God gives us a lot of things we don't deserve, doesn't he? I mean, all of us here in this room are blessed today. Uh, we're all clothed and, and probably more or less in our right mind. We've probably all had something to eat today. And we have a home to go to and we have some prospects of a meal later today, probably. But think of what percentage of the world does not have those prospects today. 
Think how cold it is out there. And there are many people in the world who are in that kind of coldness without the ability to find warmth, as we can, fairly easily. And, and they have no hope of food any time today, or maybe even tomorrow, who knows how long. I mean, we are already blessed far beyond what we deserve. And with that, we should have a spirit of thanksgiving. In his comments on this passage, Charles Spurgeon said, One night spent in prayer ennobled Jacob. Think about that. One night spent in prayer made Jacob a spiritual noble. How few of us have ever tried to win a prince's rank in this way? How much might we gain if we would wrestle for it? Jacob, when Jacob prevailed with the angel, he virtually disarmed Esau. He who has power with God will surely prevail with men. Those are strong words. He who has power with God will surely prevail with men. You know, you, you know when you're talking to a godly man or woman, because their, their, their character just oozes the grace of God. And you have a sense that, that they're walking with him. And he radiates from their being. And that's a gift to us, to have fellowship with one another and, and to recognize that. I don't have these passages, a couple of them, on, your, on the outline, but I'd like to turn to them. Uh, first, if you would, turn to Ezra uh, chapter 9. Ezra comes right after 2 Chronicles, just before Nehemiah. Ezra chapter 9. Those of you who have done various studies through Scripture know that in the Scripture there are, there are several wonderful prayers given. And one of those prayers is the prayer of Ezra. Now, Ezra was a priest. And Ezra was part of the, uh, of the second uh, uh, exodus, if you will, the return from the exile in Babylonia to the land of Judah. And when he returned to the land, he was, he was struck by the fact that there, were, there was disobedience amongst the people of God. And here, here is a man who gives us a beautiful example of intercessory prayer. I mean, this man wrestles with God as Jacob did, <coughs> beginning at verse 5. Well, let me, let me back up to verse 3. And when I heard about this matter, talking about the sin, it was, it was uh, miscegenation, the, the Jewish people were marrying, intermarrying with the uh, pagan people uh, against God's command. When I heard about this, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Have we ever gone to prayer feeling appalled? Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. <laughs> we sat all afternoon appalled. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. 
And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face to thee, my God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the day, days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, of gra moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem, a wall of God's protection. And now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end, and with their impurity. So now, do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace nor, or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. And after all that has come upon us, for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, O Lord, our, our God, hast requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and hast given us an escaped remnant as this, we shall again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations. Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction? For there is no remnant, nor any who escape. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt, for no one can stand before thee because of this. Now one of the important things about Ezra's prayer is that Ezra himself was not personally guilty of this sin, but he included himself amongst his people and said, we are guilty, O God. Because whether a particular individual is guilty of a particular sin, we are all guilty before God. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is not a pre-Christian verse only. That verse applies after we have become Christians. We're still guilty, and we still need God's daily cleansing. Not that we'll achieve heaven, but as Jesus said to Peter, well, you're clean, Peter, but not quite all. Now, where the rubber meets the road, there's a little dirt there, and it needs to be cleansed. And if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse our sin. And remember, 1 John was written to believers, not to unbelievers. It wasn't written as a book to bring people into Christianity. It was written to believers that we recognize the fact that we need daily cleansing. And so Ezra, as he included himself, even though he was not guilty of the particular sin, he was still a man who needed God's cleansing. 
And so he went before God in this, this powerful intercessory prayer. He sat appalled, it says. I, I think sometimes we have to become appalled over our sin before we really can get a hold of God in a way that's going to shake the foundations, if you will, the rafters. And I think that's why we have so much prayer that does so little today, because we're, we're not appalled over our sin. We take it lightly. And we, you know, we sometimes sing these giddy songs, you know, where, where we, it's sort of like Jesus is just our buddy and we're walking down the road together arm in arm as if it were, you know, no big deal. And sometimes we lose the vision of the fact that he is almighty God. He's not just a buddy. He's God incarnate. He's our king, our creator. And we need to stand in holy awe of him. Absolutely appalled of how far short we fall of his great glory. And when you read that, that account that John portrays for us in the 19th chapter of Revelation of Jesus riding forth on the great white horse and the great armies of heaven with him. You know, sometimes we, uh, we almost translate that into some movie we've seen of the cavalry charge or something, you know, and, and don't really get a a vision of this, uh, of the glory and the splendor of who he is and how much we need his deliverance. Turn, if you will, also to Second Chronicles chapter 6. Solomon, too, caught this vision. In spite of what Solomon later became, Solomon at one, at one time was a man who, who really stood before God as an intercessor. 2 Chronicles 6, looking at verse 36. If you get the picture, the, the temple of Solomon, this glorious structure has been completed. And it's the day of dedication. And here's this great altar upon which the sacrifices would be burned. This great bronze altar. And Solomon went up on that altar. And, and first, the scripture says, he stood with his arms raised to heaven. And then the latter part indicates at some point he sank to his knees with his arms raised to heaven. And he prayed this prayer. And it's a long prayer. I'll only read a, uh, towards the end of it here. When they sin against thee, for there is no man who does not sin. And thou art angry with them, and dost deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to a land far off or near. And, of course, that's exactly what Ezra was responding to. That's what happened. If they take thought in the land where they are taken captive, and repent and make supplication to thee in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly. If they return to thee with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive, and pray toward their land which thou hast given to their fathers, and the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear from heaven and from thy dwelling place their prayer and supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people who have sinned against thee. Now, O my God, I pray thee, let thine eyes be open and thy, uh, thine ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. 
Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to thy resting place, and thou in the ark of thy might. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. Remember thy loving kindness to thy servant David. Now what happened as a result? Let's look at the first three verses of the seventh chapter. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house, that, that is the temple. And the priest could not even enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good, truly his loving kindness is everlasting. I, I think we fall short of giving God the praise due his name, uh, of really being so overwhelmed with, with who he is that we literally, if not physically, but in our spirits, are on our face before him and saying, Great is the Lord, and his loving kindness is to all generations. I think it really takes that to break through in prayer that makes a difference. All is one through prayer. Souls are one through prayer. Revival is one through prayer. Healing of marriages is one through prayer. Deliverance from demonic oppression or the lusts of this life is one through prayer. Prayer is the most important ministry of the church. There is no other ministry as important as the ministry of prayer. Once the victory has been won in prayer, then the preaching goes with power. Then the teaching goes forth with power. Then the witnessing or the worshiping or the giving of, uh, uh, of offerings achieves its purpose because the victory has first been won through prayer. I think the word of God is preached in many places in this land and it bounces off the wall and the ceiling and, and bounces off the hard heads of the people in the congregation <coughs> because there's been little or no prayer. Certainly no prevailing prayer, no wrestling with God through the night. As I think I've mentioned before, when Jonathan Edwards preached his great sermons, and particularly the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God where the whole congregation was hanging onto the poles and the chairs uh, because they felt they were slipping into hell. His sermons had power not because he was a dynamic preacher, because he read his manuscript in a monotone, but because the night before there were 400 people in the church praying. And the morning of the service in the basement of the church were scores of people praying as the sermon was preached. It shook the very foundations of that community. And you connect Edwards with the tenants and their log college training and Frelinghuysen and some of the other preachers at that time, and, and what do you have? We have the Great Awakening in America in the 1720s, 30s, 40s. And, and it just swept through America, and, and, and taverns didn't have to be, you didn't have to go over there and try to break the bottles and, and, and try to take away the tavern license. They closed down because nobody went to the tavern was done through prayer. All of the great revivals of history have been won through prayer. All of them have come 
because men and women became broken and went to God in prayer. Whether you're talking about the Second Awakening, which swept through the country beginning in 1799 into the early 19th century, or, or the revivals of 1859 just before the Civil War, or the revivals that actually occurred during the Civil War, or, or the ministry then that followed with, with men like Moody and Tory and Sunday and others, it was prayer that made all the difference. Remember when Billy Graham comes into a place to hold a crusade, he wants the churches united in what? Just tacking up posters? Well, they're supposed to do that, but pray. Because that's the only way the crusade's going to have an impact. It's through prayer. Satan knows that as long as he can keep us indifferent to prayer, he's got us by the throat. He knows that we as individuals are not going to be effective and the church is just going to sit there and make minimal contribution or impact upon the community unless the church turns to God in prayer. Satan hate, hates prayer more than he hates anything else that we do. And that's why he wants us to not think it's important. And that's why so many of us have a hard time becoming convinced that prayer really makes any difference. And we think, why? It's irrational. Why should we have to pray? God knows all things. God has all power. What in the world do we have to pray for? You know, God says, I, I know what you need before you even ask. So why bother asking? And, and, and that's what the enemy wants. But God has chosen, just like the angels. You know, what does God need angels for? God doesn't need an angel for anything. God can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to say to this angel, now go down there and tell Daniel that I'm going to do this. I mean, and, and it took him 21 days to break through. What, what for? God could just punch right through and give Daniel the word in his ear. He didn't have to send an angel. But God chose to, to create angels as ministering spirits to those who are of the household of faith. And God chooses prayer because of his own reason. For one thing, it's very humiliating. You know, prayer is kind of humiliating because we have to admit we're not sufficient to the task. <laughs> and so, you know, you read these passages, Solomon was on his knees with his arms to heaven as he prayed, and Ezra was on his face appalled and then raised his hands to heaven. And I'm not saying raising your hands to heaven or getting on your knees makes prayer more effective. But I'm just saying in our hearts, we've got to arrive at that position that they arrived at. We've got to recognize the glory and the power of the Almighty, and we have to recognize our absolute bankruptcy without that. You know, we cannot come up with programs and, 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 and things that are going to change people's lives unless they're rooted in, in prayer. Otherwise, we're just flailing around, and, and uh, sometimes we're very frustrated because we think we're ministering, but we don't have fulfillment. Well, that doesn't mean there's no fruit at all, obviously. Um, you know, God brings his fruit in his time, but there would be an absolute avalanche if we followed his program. To the extent to which we pray is the extent to which we're serious about being a disciple of Christ. To the, ex the, the strength of the prayer ministry of the church is a measure of the spiritual strength of the church. In the 32nd chapter of Genesis, verse 25, this prayer cost Jacob something. He limped, we assume from the implication here, for the rest of his life to be reminded of this 
encounter with God and this intercessory prayer. The angel touched him on the thigh and it became dislocated and the implication is it was for the rest of his life dislocated. Jacob would carry therefore with him this stigmata, this mark of his encounter with God. Paul talks about his stigmata. You'll read about it particularly in Galatians where he says that he bore on his body the stigmata, the marks of Jesus. He pressed on, we're told, in one passage towards the call, uh, the, the prize of the call of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And this would be seen in the outworking of the events of his life. Remember he talks about being stoned and whipped and thrown into the deep, shipwrecked. And these privations left their marks on him. And how come he had those marks? Because he was serving Christ, so they are in fact the stigmata of Christ on his body. And we think about ourselves, what marks do we have to illustrate our submission and commitment to him? What marks do we have? In the 27th verse, the angel asked Jacob his name. Now why did he do that? Does God not know the name of this man he's wrestling with? <laughs> Certainly. God knew him better than anyone else did. The question was not asked to inform the angel of the Lord. The question was asked so that Jacob would admit, I am the deceiver, the supplanter. I'm Jacob. When we face God, when we wrestle with God, it becomes a reality of who we are. And our spiritual pride begins to evaporate a little bit because we recognize how far short we are of his glory. And who are we to say, oh, look at me, you know, I'm a great spiritual leader. I, I'm a man or a woman of great spirituality. The angel changed his name to Israel, probably coming from Sar-El, which means to persist with God, to persist with God, and hence, ultimately, prince with God. He was ennobled by his perseverance in prayer. Do we want to stop being a peon with God and become a noble? We need to be perseverant in prayer and in our getting a hold of God and saying, we are not satisfied, Lord, with who we are and with the situation as we find it because you can change it. Jacob asked the angel what his name was, and he said, why do you ask me? The implication, I think, there is, why do you ask me? You know who I am. You know who I am. Why are you asking me my name? Jacob commemorated this place. He called it Peniel, or Penuel, which means the face of God. He believed that he had wrestled with God and had survived. Now, obviously, like Abraham and Moses and the disciples of the New Testament who were, walked with Jesus for several years, Jacob had seen God in veiled form, veiled human form. He had not seen God in all his glory because the scripture makes it very clear, no man has seen God in all his glory and lived. There's a 
Absolutely beautiful passage. You've read it, I'm sure, many times. But let's turn to it in Exodus chapter 33. To me, this is one of the most beautiful passages of all Scripture. Moses is on Mount Sinai. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will be show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. That, the implication is to look directly into the glory of God. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you there with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In other words, you'll see the afterglow and the afterglow will be awesome, but you cannot look on my face, not in your human flesh because it's corrupt. But one day we shall see him, what? Face to face. We will see him in all his glory. What about Isaiah? Remember in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now what did he see? He saw a vision. There was a veil there. But he saw a vision. And what did that veiled vision do to him? Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. If we catch a little glimpse of the glory of God, we recognize that we're not worthy to stand in his presence, in our flesh, as we are. Our worthiness comes because it's been imputed to us through Christ. And that should make us filled with joy. Jacob limped over the Jabbok. You, you can turn to that passage in 1 Kings if you want to sometime. And, and that's the last reference to Penuel. Uh, in Scripture, it just simply says that uh, Jeroboam went there and he built some structure there at, um, at Penuel. But here we find at the end of the chapter that Jacob limped over the Jabbok to lead his family in this encounter with Esau. You see, he was ready. He was weaker now than he had been before he met God in his body. Less able, for example, to actually wrestle hand to hand with Esau now than he had been before. But now he was more able because God was with him. And God would make up the difference. You know, it just proves how weak we are, how unable we are to accomplish God's purpose in our self. And we need to be aware of that. We limp, as it were. We need God's strength. The limp, of course, proved to Jacob and to his family. I mean, they said, what happened to you? And he could tell his family, I had an encounter with the Almighty. And he changed me. Yeah, you limp. Yeah, but it, I, I'm now dependent on his strength and, and not on my own strength. It was a stark reality. He now had the strength and the faith to meet the most crucial challenge of his life, up to that moment anyway. And that is why the scripture tells us that the Israelites would refuse to, to eat that part and any animal that corresponded to the hip of Jacob. Not because it's in the law of Moses, thou shalt not eat the sinew on the hip, 
It's simply because out of honor to the patriarch, out of respect to him, they have chosen not to eat that portion of the animal to, to commemorate this event and the moment when Jacob's fleshly power was set aside and replaced by God's almighty power and he would go on to face Esau in that strength. And would it make a difference? Whoa. Esau would come and weep on his shoulder. The man who wanted to kill him, who had a rage against him, would come and weep on his shoulder. What made the difference? The goats, the sheep, whatever it was, you know, the animals he sent? God melted his heart. God is the one who made the difference. Well, next week we'll look into the 33rd chapter and look at that specific encounter.